So Romans chapter 8, I'm going to read this and then we're going to go ahead and get into this passage together. Um, There's going to be a lot of different verses that we're going to be looking at here this morning. Um, Looking at the first 17 verses and the title of this morning's message is Life in the Spirit. Life in the Spirit. In fact, this morning I was reading just a great uh, devotional by Charles Spurgeon, Morning and Evening, and he was talking about how we can't do anything at all in this life separate from the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. And I thought, what a perfect passage to be teaching this morning about life in the Spirit. So Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made thee free from the law of sin and death, For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin. The Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Verse 12. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Father, this morning we come before you, we thank you for your word, we thank you, Lord God, for the fellowship of the saints, we thank you for the spirit of God that dwells richly in us, abundantly within us, Lord, and we pray today, Lord, that you would meet us in this place. We pray today, Lord God, that you would help, as as Clay prayed earlier, that all the distractions of this life would just be put aside. Lord, that we might be one-minded, single-minded, and single-hearted this morning. That our attentions, our affections, our pursuit would be Jesus only today. We pray, Lord God, that you would stir our hearts, that you'd encourage us, that you'd build us up in our faith. And Lord, we pray just for an extra outpouring of your Holy Spirit upon us, that we might hear your voice, that we might respond to the things you teach us today. In Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Well, Romans is probably one of my favorite books. In fact, uh, when I became a Christian, it was literally the first book I ever read in the Bible was the book of Romans. The second book was Revelation. <laughs> right? And that's why it took so many years to correct so much in my, in my mind. But Romans is very special to me. Um, very, very special to me. And so when we had the opportunity to teach through Romans and talk about uh, the Spirit um, I was really looking forward to it. We taught on Romans chapter 5, 6, 7, and 8. Um, Romans chapter 5, we read about peace with God through faith in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 6, Paul tells us that we are dead to sin through Jesus and that we are raised or born again in newness of life. In chapter 7, we see that we are released from the burden and condemnation of the law and now we can walk in the Spirit and bear fruit in the Spirit. And in chapter 8, we see the work of the Spirit in the life of the believer. Literally, what life in the Spirit 
looks like. And so this morning we're going to look at five things. Number one, the basis of life in the Spirit is found in our identity in Jesus. The basis of life in the Spirit is found in our identity in Jesus. Second, life in the Spirit means that we are secure before God. Our standing before God, we are secure. Thirdly, life in the Spirit means our freedom is governed by a higher law of the Spirit of life. And again, I'll be referencing these all the way through so don't be like he's going so fast i can't write it down i'll be referencing all this as we go through fourthly spirit of the life in the spirit means living empowered by the spirit of christ who dwells within us and lastly life in the spirit enables us to pursue god okay all that sounds great right so far Sounds amazing. Okay, number one, the basis of life in the Spirit is our identity in Jesus. So before anything else, we must define what it means to be in Christ, to be in Christ. John Stott says this, the most common description in the scriptures of a follower of Jesus is that he or she is a person in Christ. The expression in Christ or in the Lord or in him is seen 164 times in the writings of Paul alone. And it is indispensable for our understanding of the New Testament. Okay? To be in Christ does not mean to be inside Christ as tools are in a toolbox or clothes are in a closet. To be in Christ literally means to be organically united to Christ as a limb is to our body, or as a branch is to a tree. It is this personal relationship with Jesus that is the distinctive mark of an authentic believer. What distinguishes true believers of Christ is neither their creed, nor their code of ethics, nor their ceremonies, nor the church they go to, the Bible that they carry, or the culture that they're in. What distinguishes true followers of Jesus is Jesus himself. What is often mistakenly called Christianity is, in essence, neither a religion nor a system. Christianity is a person. It's Jesus. What do you mean by that? Well, in Colossians chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, Colossians 1, 17 and 18, Paul describes it this way. He says, he, Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things consist, or all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence, or as the ESV says, that he might be preeminent. Now, the word preeminent means that Jesus is the greatest, that he is foremost, he is chief, he is supreme, he's first, he is matchless. First in heart, first in pursuit, first in passion. Paul is speaking of those who find their hope in Christ, who submit to him as Lord and Savior. And what that means is this. It it means that we are to be Christian, not just to be a Christian, but to be Christian. And the question we want to ask ourselves this morning as we begin is this. Is does that describe you? Is Jesus first in your heart? First in your pursuit, first in your passion, not one of the first things, not just important in your life, but is he first in pursuit, in passion, in heart? Is he foremost, chief, supreme? And I love this word, is he match less, meaning that nothing compares to him. No one or nothing is in the running compared to him. Paul has an interesting uh, statement in Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 through 16. He, he captures this idea of what it means that Jesus is first. He says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, he says, I press on toward the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The word press means that every ounce of energy in his body, every fiber of his being is pressing toward Jesus. And notice what he says. He says this one thing I do. He doesn't say the number one thing I do. 
He says, this one thing I do, because he understands something about the human mentality. He understands something about who we are as human beings, that there's always competition going on in our hearts. And whenever there's a first thing and there's a second and a third thing, what is second and third always trying to do? Always trying to become what? First. Always trying to become first. I don't know if you guys are anything like me. I'm never satisfied with second. I'm never satisfied with third. I know some people at, at the conference this weekend when I was talking about, I'm never satisfied with third. One guy was like, I'm totally satisfied with third. I'm like, that's unique. That's not me. I, if I'm second, I always want to be first. There's some kind of competitive nature in my heart striving for excellence. And if there's one, two, and three, Three is always trying to become one. Second is always trying to become one. But Paul knows that about us, and he says this, there's only one thing I do. There's no second, there's no third. One thing, and that's Jesus. Everything else pales. Everything else is not even in the running. It's not even in consideration. Family, career, future dreams, aspirations, even moms, sorry to say this, even children, Jesus first. Jesus first. Forgetting what lies behind, where you came from, what you've experienced, what you've had to go through, the pain that you've carried with you your entire life. All of that is set aside so that you're unencumbered in your pursuit of Jesus. In fact, in the old days, in the Olympics, you guys probably know this, Right? When they would compete, they would compete naked because they would literally derobe themselves of any hindrance so that they could attain the goal that was before them. And so they stripped off everything that might hold them back. And that's the imagery that Paul's talking about. As I'm straining, as I'm pursuing, I'm stripping everything away to acquire this one thing, and that is Jesus. And look at what he says in verse 15. In verse 15, he says, let those of us, this is the mindset of those who are Christian, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true. Let us stay true. Let us stay the course to what we have attained, to what we have been entrusted with, meaning our faith in Christ. Now, some have said Christian means little Christ. Perhaps you guys have heard that before, but the literal translation of Christian is house of Christ. House of Christ. Why is that important? Why is that such an important distinction? Because it means that Jesus is the head and that we find our identity in him. And by doing so, what that means is that our lives reflect his headship. Our lives are defined and identified by what we are anchored to. Our lives are defined and identified by what our lives are rooted in. And so number one, the basis of life in the Spirit is our identity in Jesus. Secondly, it means our standing before God is secure. In Romans chapter 8, verse 1, Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Here's that phrase, in Christ. We just talked about the importance of understanding who we are. In him. And so Paul says, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. He makes a distinction. There are those that walk one way, and there are those that walk in the Spirit. And those that walk in the Spirit, right, these are the, they who are in Christ. He says, There is no condemnation. What Paul's talking about is that when we come to Christ for our salvation, we are no longer under God's wrath. Before we came to Jesus, that's what we had waiting for us, the wrath of God. We were underneath his wrath. And Paul says now, as a Christian, as you are in Christ, you are no longer under that wrath. There is no longer condemnation awaiting you. You are pardoned. You have peace with God. You're justified, right? You guys have heard that word before. I'm sure Rory has taught it multiple times here um, in the years that he's been here at church. The word justified, it literally means a legal justification declaring you innocent. Think of it this way. 
Say Michelle, my wife, who I've been married to for 27 years by God's grace. Actually, 27 years, January 11th. December 11th. <laughs> you know when you say things, you wish you could rewind stuff? December 11th, 27 years. That was one of those moments. Oh, man. By God's grace, December 11th, 27 years. I know it should be on my nuts. You're right. Um, but say we met, and say I was a very, very wealthy man, right? And all of a sudden, look at Adam. Adam's like, <laughs> say I was a very, very wealthy man. Michelle and I meet, and say when we meet, I find out that she is in debt to high heaven, right? She has maxed out all of her credit cards. She's gotten to a place where she is under it. She's upside down. There's no possible way if she lived 14 lives or 27 lives that she'd be able to pay that off, right? But at that point, the financial institutions have really three choices. They can either write off her debt and just kind of absorb it and write it off for tax purposes at the end of the year, or they can call her debt and make her pay, working out some kind of a payment plan over a period of time, or they can take legal action against her and take everything that she has, right? There's really three things that they can do. Um, And not only after her, they could probably go after anyone that she's connected to in that case. But say that we get married, which we did 27 years ago on December 11th. (laughs) Say we get married, right? And there's this exchange that now takes place. She takes my name, Michelle Cross, and I take on her burden, her financial burden. And I pay that off. Okay? She's no longer in debt. You're right? She's no longer a debtor to these financial institutions. And now she is free and clear. And the judicial system looks at her and says, she's good. There's, there's nothing there for us to be able to do. There's no, there's no longer any legal standing. Now, this doesn't mean on a spiritual level, that's really what's happened to us on, on, in our relationship with Jesus, Right? We came with an incredible amount of debt that we could never pay. And Jesus, we took on his name, right? We became Christian. We took on the name of Jesus. We're covered by his blood. He has now forgiven us of all of our debt. He has paid the debt himself upon Calvary, right? That's what we understand about the gospel. And now we stand before God the Father, the righteous judge, as if we've never sinned, right? That's the idea. Now, spiritually speaking, this doesn't mean that we no longer sin. Anyone who's walked with the Lord for any length of time understands that we still battle sin. Romans chapter 7 is all about this, right? This idea of Paul says, hey, the things I I know I'm supposed to do, those things I don't do. Things I want to do that I know are right, those things I fail to do. The things I know I hate and I shouldn't be doing, those things I do all the time. And he's talking about this wrestling between the spirit and the flesh. And at the end he says, who will save me? Oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? And then he has an answer, Jesus Christ, he says, right? And so here is this idea. It's not that we don't no longer sin, but rather it means that all of our sin is forgiven. 1 John 1, 9 tells us what? That if we confess our sins, John is writing to Christians. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from righteousness, right? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness, sorry, from all unrighteousness, and I love that word all. It means every aspect, not just the big things, not just the things that we can remember that we did, not just the things that people are calling us on, but all unrighteousness, right? It doesn't mean that we're not going to be convicted of sin, but rather that our standing before God remains. We are declared as righteous. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, The difference between an unbeliever sinning and a Christian sinning is the difference between a man breaking the law of the state and a husband who has done something he should not do in his relationship with his wife. He is not breaking the law, but rather wounding the heart of his wife. So it goes from relational, or sorry, it goes from legal to relational. It goes from legal to relational. You see, as Christians, men and women who have been forgiven have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And when we sin, it's no longer a legal matter. It's a matter of personal relationship. It's a matter of love. 
early on, Michelle and I, my wife and I, and our two kids, um, obviously you know Claire is here with us, my oldest daughter Sarah is in college, but early on we started trying to implant within them this understanding of what happens on a spiritual level when we sin on the, on the practical stage of life, okay? And so we would do this thing where if they did something wrong, we would say, this is how our relationship is all the time. You are our daughter. And it doesn't matter what you do or what you say or where you go, that position remains no matter what. That position will never change. You are our daughter. If you decide to move to the other parts of the earth, the other side of the planet, and never speak to us again, you are still our daughter. That never changes. That position is secure. However, the, the decisions and choices that you make can affect our relationship. See the difference? Positionally, we're secure. Relationally, because of the choices and decisions that we make, it can break that relationship. The Bible tells us that when we sin, it separates us from God. And so we'd sit there and I'd say, okay, so now you have done this. You couldn't remember your anniversary. You'd done these things. What must you do? And I would ask my daughters, what must you do? And I'm not going to put her on the spot like I did last night. But she would say, I need to ask for forgiveness. Confess my sin and ask for forgiveness. And then she would say, do you forgive me? And I would say, yes. And immediately I would do this. So she could see it. Here's how we are now. Your sin separated us. But grace and forgiveness has brought us back together. Right? That's the difference that Paul's talking about here, positionally versus relationally. It's not a legal issue. It's a, it's a relational issue. And Paul tells us that we are secure through the Spirit. So number one, the basis of life in the Spirit is our identity in Christ. Number two, life in the Spirit means our legal standing is secure before God. Thirdly, life in the Spirit means that our freedom, the Bible tells us, Jesus says, that he who the Son has set free is free in Indeed, right? So we are free. So our freedom is governed by a higher law of the spirit of life. Look at verses 2 through 4 of Romans chapter 8. Paul writes, For the law of the spirit of life, there's this phrase, in Christ, right? Here we see it again, has set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, on account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Again, he's picked up this phraseology again, not walking according to the flesh, but according to the spirit, those who are in Christ. Now we understand in the world in which we live in, the universe is governed by certain laws, gravity, kinetic energy, electricity, and magnetism. And it was Sir Isaac Newton who observed that apples falling from a tree, um, he observed what we call gravity, right? It's not that he discovered it, he observed it. God is the one that created it, he just happened to go, oh, this is happening, this is a law that we live with, I'm going to call it gravity. But he also observed that when you throw an apple in the air, you're not breaking the law of gravity. At that moment, a tempor- there's a temporary appeal to a higher law, kinetic energy. Right? Look at airplanes in the air. Those things should not fly, right? They should not stay in the sky. But gravity pushing them down, but there's a higher law working against the law of gravity, and that's the law of what? Aerodynamics, and it keeps them in the air, right? And over chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8, Paul has been building this very clear case that the law of God cannot save those who live under it. In fact, in Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 12, Paul tells us that the law simply shows us that we cannot keep it. It puts it up in front of us and goes, see this? This is what's required of you. But guess what? You can't keep it. That's hard to hear. But Paul's like, this standard? You're going to fail. That's exactly what Paul does. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says this, All have sinned and fall short of what? The glory of God. How many of us do that in this room? All of us. 
All of us fall short of the glory of God. Galatians chapter 3 verse 24 tells us that the purpose of the law was in fact to be a tutor to teach us that we need a savior. The law tells us that we're sinners, that we can't keep it, that we cannot save ourselves, and that we need help. Why? Because Romans 6.23 tells us this, that the wages of sin is what? Death. This is the law of sin and death. It's a law. And all of us are born under it. In fact, we understand there's two things that are sure in this life, death and taxes. All right? Well, 10 out of 10 people of us will face the big one, death. Just a matter, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of what? When. We're going to face it. It's a law of sin and death. We understand in in Genesis chapter 3 why death came into the world. It came into the world through sin and disobedience. And ever since then, man has been born under the law of sin and death. But the law of the spirit of the gospel is a higher law that overcomes the law of sin and death. And that's what Paul's talking about here in verses 2 through 4. He's revealing to us a superior law. He tells us the law of the Spirit is superior because Jesus became our curse in order to become our righteousness. Amen? Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 through 14. Galatians 3, verses 13 through 14. That's 12 and 13. Let's pick up right where it says Christ redeemed. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And then verse 14 says, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Again, there's that phrase, in Christ. So that in Christ, we might receive the blessed promise of the spirit through faith. Notice what Paul's talking about here has nothing to do with what we have done, has nothing to do with what the law has done. It's all about what Jesus has done and what we receive through him. You see, Paul tells us the law requires perfection, but our sin testifies that we are not perfect. And because of that, God stepped in. God condescended, and he made a way through the person and finished work of Jesus Christ Verse 4 tells us in Romans 8 that the righteous requirement of the law, which was perfection, might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh or conforming to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So here we go. The basis of life in the Spirit is our identity in Jesus. Life in the Spirit means our legal standing is secure. Thirdly, life in the Spirit means our freedom is governed by a higher law, the Spirit of life. And fourthly, Life in the Spirit means living empowered, empowered by the Spirit of Christ who dwells within us. Look at verse 5, Romans chapter 8. I'm going to be reading from the ESV here. Romans chapter 5, verses 8 through 11. He says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Again, he's contrasting two attitudes of heart, right? For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the, is the spirit, and it is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. If you guys are into underlining your Bibles, highlighting, put stars by, arrows by, circles around, that's a really good verse to highlight those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, here's the contrast, you, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. In verses 5 through 11, Paul desires to answer the question, what is the attitude of a heart that is pleasing to God? 
And what is the attitude of a heart that is hostile toward God? If you've ever spent a lot of time studying the scriptures, I'm sure Rich, or Rory has, has brought this up multiple times. When you see words repeated in sections of scripture, it's really important to take notice of them. The author is trying to, to communicate something, right? And there are several things here. The Spirit's mentioned several times. The word set is mentioned several times. Flesh is mentioned several times. In you is mentioned several times. All of those things should stand out to us. He's trying to communicate something. The word set, phroneo, is, is uh, brought up five different times in this section. The word set means to direct one's mind to a thing, to seek and to strive for. It is the idea that a person's thoughts are willfully being shaped by a nature they're allowing to direct them. They're submitting themselves to something. They're coming under the influence of something, purposefully allowing it to happen. Coming under the power of influence of a nature that they're submitting themselves to. In this case, Paul is contrasting one influence that enslaves and another influence that sets free. He's juxtaposing one life that's empowered by the Spirit to experience the fullness of life and the fullness of peace compared to another life that's controlled and overpowered or enslaved to the flesh with its lusts and desires. Five times Paul describes a person purposefully and willfully directing their mind, directing their heart as if they're looking at one thing and they say, no, I'm going to do this and I'm going to pursue this purposefully and willfully directing their mind in a certain, to a certain thing, striving after and seeking it. And the product of this type of mindfulness is either life and peace, he says, or hostility and enmity against God. Look at verse 7, Romans 8, 7. Romans 8, 7 describes the mindset that opposes God, one that hates what God loves and loves what God hates. One commentator said this, there is perhaps no greater text of scripture that completely sets forth the hideous lost state of man after the flesh than Romans chapter 8 verse 7. Charles Spurgeon says, it is not black, it is blackness. It is not corrupt, but corruption. It is not rebellious, it is rebellion. It is not wicked, it is wickedness itself. The heart, though it be deceitful, is positively deceit. It is evil in the concrete, sin in the essence. It is the distillation, the quintessence of all things that are vile. It is not envious against God. It is envy. It is not at enmity. It is actual enmity. And the great tragedy of the mind set on the flesh is the continual, insatiable search for the temporary temporary happiness, temporary amusement, temporary peace, temporary pleasure. Solomon called these things chasing after wind. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul writes this beginning in verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. They're obvious. They stand out like a sore thumb. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, and those are things that, well, I don't do any of those things. I have no problem, but what about these other things? Hatred, contention, jealousy, outbursts of wrath or fits of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, divisions or heresies, envy, murder, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. And all of which results not in satisfaction, but in tired, worried, frustrated, and disappointed people. A mind that is set on the pursuit of these things never gains anything. But their pursuit of them garners the loss of everything. In verse 21, Paul says, Of which I told you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. I remember years ago, I was talking with a, a relative of mine, outside and, and I was sharing God, what God is doing in my life and you could tell that he was not happy to hear it and he didn't want to hear it anymore and, 
in fact, he said, why are you always talking about these things? And I just, I said, because I love you. And he goes, I don't want to hear it anymore. And he goes, I don't believe that what you're doing is right. And I feel like you're wasting your time. I looked at him and said, listen, if I'm wrong, if everything that I'm pursuing is wrong, what have I, what have I lost? I've desired to, to be a good person, to be a good citizen in my country, to pay my taxes, to love people, to be helpful, to, to help those who are less fortunate than I, to speak hope in people's lives. What have I lost? If I'm wrong, what have I lost? But if I'm right, I've gained everything. But in contrast, if I'm right, then you've lost everything. That's what Paul's talking about here. Those who are in the flesh, they cannot please God. Notice the word flesh is mentioned six times in this section. The number six in the Bible is the number of man. And what that tells us is that we can never merit the favor of God. In contrast, the word spirit is, is mentioned nine times. And the number nine in the Bible symbolizes divine completeness. And it conveys the meaning of finality. And so we see how Paul is architecting, if you will. He's sculpting this argument by using specific words and juxtaposing them against one another to show the weight and the power of them. Beginning in verse 9, Paul begins to describe the person who purposefully and willfully sets and strives and seeks after the Spirit, who directs their mind and attitude on the Spirit. In verse 14, he says this, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. I love that verse. Probably the last year and a half, two years, I have prayed that verse virtually every day, if not every single week. Lord, you say in your word, the sons of God are led by the Spirit of God. Direct me and lead me today. I pray that over my kids' lives all the time. Direct them and lead them. Why is it so important? Because it's an identifying mark. It's an identifying mark. You must be born again in order to have the Spirit of God. You must be born again in order to be in Christ. And Paul says that those who are in Christ, who are in the Spirit, they will be led, they will be shepherded, if you will, to life and to peace. And as our lives are shepherded in the Spirit, four things happen. Number one, we begin to see God and His will as good, right? We begin to see God and His will as good. Romans 12, 2 tells us this, Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that, there's a purpose, so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. And so as we're directed, shepherded in the Spirit, we see that God is good and His will is good. We begin to see our stuff in their proper perspective. It's just stuff. We begin to live at peace with ourselves and with others. And lastly, the fruit of the Spirit doesn't just exist in our lives. It begins to abound in our lives, right? Galatians chapter 5, love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, goodness, and self-control. <laughs> self-control. Those things begin to abound, not just exist, but overflow in our lives. So again, the basis of life in the Spirit is our identity in Christ. Life in the Spirit means our legal standing is secure. Life in the Spirit means our freedom is governed by a higher law, the law of the Spirit of life. And life in the Spirit means living empowered by the Spirit of Christ who dwells within us. And lastly, life in the Spirit enables us to pursue God our Father. Look at verse 12. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we call, cry out, sorry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. Another verse to underline. The Spirit himself bears, uh, uh, sorry, bears witness with our spirit that we are the sons of God. If children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him that we may also be glorified together. If you guys are anything like me, and I pray that you are, I think one of the greatest mistakes 
that we make as Christians, the mistake that leads to so many bad choices, mistakes that lead to so many destructive decisions, is that we forget who we are. We forget who we are. And Paul wants to remind us in these last few verses, 12 through 17, that we are sons and daughters of God. Verse 16, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. That is assurance. God is our Father. Paul wants to remind us, to bring us back to that reality. That is our our identity, is that we are sons and daughters of God. That's what the Spirit does. It gives us concrete assurance we belong to. Remember a few weeks ago we studied Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 13. We saw how all three persons of the Trinity are involved in our salvation. What God the Father does to procure our salvation. What God the Son does to procure our salvation. What God the Holy Spirit does to procure our salvation. In fact, the last few verses, 12 and 13 of Ephesians chapter 1, it says that when you heard the gospel... You responded, and it says, and the Holy Spirit was given to you as a seal and a guarantee of your inheritance until the coming of Christ. So we've been sealed, and the Holy Spirit's purpose, one of them, point us to Jesus, to remind us of all that Jesus said and did, but also to give us assurance that we belong to God. And as God's children, we have no business playing with sin. It's not who we are. It doesn't fit. Look at verse 12. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. That is who you are. Brothers and sisters, that is who you are. Sons and daughters of God. Of God. Paul is talking about putting sin to death in our daily lives, killing sin, if you will. But why? What motivates us to do so? Listen, what motivates us to kill sin is not duty, it is not obligation, it is seeing God the Father as our greatest treasure and finding joy in pursuit of Him. Seeing God as our greatest treasure and finding joy. In pursuing him. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, Jesus says something very interesting. I'm reading again from the ESV. It says, The kingdom of God is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. And then in his great joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Who's the treasure that Jesus is referring to there in this parable? It's God. It's God. Who is the person that is supposed to go and sell all that he has to obtain what's in this field? It's you and I. It's us. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. It's it's discovering God. And it's doing everything we need to do in our lives to obtain it, to acquire it, to possess him. Jim Elliott said this, that he is no fool to give up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. And this picture is someone who sells everything, puts everything aside. He measures out what he's found compared to everything that he has and he is. And he says, this is nothing compared to this. I'm willing to sacrifice all of this to gain this. And Jim Elliott puts it together perfectly. He's no fool to give up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. And maybe that's a great question for us this morning as we come to a close of our time together. Maybe the Holy Spirit would have us pause for a moment and just ask ourselves this one question. Do you find joy in your pursuit of him? Do you find joy in pursuit of God? The Westminster Shorter Catechism says this, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's what we were made to do to glorify God, and to enjoy him. That's what life in the Spirit is. That's why we're here, to seek the face of God, to enter into his presence. That's why we gather every single Sunday. That's why we gather in our home groups. 
That's why we have our core groups, so that we can seek the face of God together as brothers and sisters in Christ to enter into his presence, to know him more clearly, to love him more dearly, and to follow him more nearly. Amen? To know him as we're known by him, to commune with him. And what's crazy is that God invites us to do so. He invites us to commune with him. And David responds in Psalm 27, verse 8. He says, he says, you have said to me, seek my face. And then he responds, and my heart says to you, your face, Lord, will I seek. In Psalm 63, verse 1, he writes, oh God, you are my God, and earnestly I seek you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I love what the Bible says about David in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14. It says that David was a man after God's own heart. And it sounds amazing. You think, oh, gosh, well, that was David. That's, that's not me. I mean, he's in the Bible. I'm not really. You are on the Bible, in the Bible. All over the pages of Scripture, you're there. You're there. He wouldn't have done what he did if he didn't have you at the center of his heart. When we read through the New Testament, it's all about him and his love for you. And what he desires is that we would have the same heart that David has. Why does it say that David is a man after God's own heart? Not because he was perfect. We know David and Bathsheba, we know he wasn't perfect. It's not because he was sinless. It's not because he was a king. But it was because he was a man who sought God. When things were good, he sought God. When things were bad, guess what? He sought God. When things were ugly, he sought God. In fact, you guys know this story in 2 Samuel verse 12, or chapter 12, 2 Samuel 12, where David sins against Bathsheba and he's with his best friend Nathan. And Nathan's talking to him and Nathan's confronting him on his sin. David thinks what he's done is in private, but God sees everything. And Nathan starts to tell him the story. And he says, so... There were two men. There was a rich man that had a, a huge flock of sheep. And there was a poor man that only had one sheep. And he loved that sheep. And he would bathe that sheep. And he would sing to that sheep. And he'd bring that sheep into his house. And the, and the, like a pet, like a family member. And he would sleep inside the house. They loved that sheep. And one day, the rich man's friends came. And so the rich man wanted to have a party, and so he went down and he took that one sheep from that poor man, and he slayed that sheep, and he gave it to his friends to eat. What do you think we should do with that man, David? David was out of his mind. You guys remember the story. He's like, that guy should be slain, and all that he has should be taken from him, and he should repay four times what it costs for that one lamb. And he said, David, that's you. And David's overwhelmed by the weight of his sin. And he cries out to God. He says, against you and you only have I sinned. And before he can get the last word out of his mouth, Nathan says, God has heard your confession and he's forgiven you. That fast. But even in the ugly, David was a man that sought God. That's why it says of him that he's a man after God's own heart. God was always first in his passions first in his heart, first in his pursuit. He treasured God. His heart was tender toward God. Listen to what he writes in 1 Chronicles 16, 8 through 11. 1 Chronicles 16, 8 through 11. This is as David has just brought the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem, and he's celebrating, right? He's just been dancing in his underwear, right, in the streets of Jerusalem, and now he's singing to the Lord. He says this, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, verse 8. Call upon his name. Hear this heart after God. Listen to this pursuit and the joy that's in his heart. He says, oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praise to him. Tell all of his wondrous works. Can you hear just the electricity in him? Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. This is a man after God's own heart. This is what it means to have life in the spirit, guys. And so the question is, do you find joy in your pursuit of God? 
What motivates us to kill sin is not duty. It is not obligation. It is seeing God as our Father. It's seeing him as our greatest treasure and finding joy in our pursuit of him. And so again, life in the Spirit begins by appropriating our identity in Jesus. It means that we're secure in Christ. It means that we yield to the law of the Spirit of life. It means being empowered by the Spirit of Christ who dwells within us, and it enables us to make much of God. Amen? One last thought. Life in the Spirit means that we are continually learning, continually learning to find our satisfaction in Jesus alone. And speaking to a large audience, D.L. Moody, he held up a glass And he asked the audience, how can I get the air out of this glass? And one man said, well, suck it out with a pump. And D.L. Moody said, well, that would create a vacuum, and it would shatter the glass. After numerous other suggestions, D.L. Moody finally smiled, and he picked up a pitcher of water, and he began to pour it into that glass. And then he went on to explain that victory in Christ or sorry, victory in the Christian life is not accomplished by sucking out sin here and there but it's about removing the air within by filling it with the Spirit of God. That's what it means to have a life in the Spirit. Let's pray. We'll have the worship team make their way back up. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you, God, for the opportunity to just Allow your word to wash over our hearts. I can imagine that for many of us this week, it was difficult, it was challenging, it was hard, stressful. And Lord, we found it difficult to walk in the spirit. We found ourselves in many ways, perhaps walking in the flesh. The attitude of our heart was not well-pleasing to you. And Lord, I can say there are times this week that's true of my own heart. We thank you, Lord God, for the picture that you have revealed to us, Lord, of what it means to walk in the Spirit versus walking in the flesh. And we thank you, Lord, that not only have you revealed it to us, but you've made a way for us to be able to do it. Thank you, Lord, that we are in Christ. And because we're in him, we are secure in the Father. And because we're in Christ and secure in the Father, Lord, we've been empowered by Christ Jesus who lives within us. And the higher power of the spirit of life supersedes and is superior to the law of sin and death. And thank you, Lord God, that we can make much of you. I pray today that each and every one of us, as we leave this place, would truly make much of you. That question is the pursuit of God. Or do you find joy in your pursuit of God? That would challenge us today. And we'd ask ourselves, is God my greatest treasure? Now, those two questions would begin to shape, would begin to direct our hearts. Father, would begin to draw us upon the path that you would have for us this week in our marriages as we look to you as our greatest treasure, with our children as parents, in our relationships, in our responsibilities, Lord, may you be our treasure, our greatest treasure today. And ask, Lord God, that you would bless us with your presence this week. As we gather together in our home groups, as we gather together in our core groups, maybe if we just get together randomly throughout the week, that we'd be able to share with one another how wonderful you are, how amazing you are, that our song would imitate the song of David there in Chronicles. Bless the Lord. Sing to his praises. Sing to the Lord. Help us this week to make much of you, we pray. In Jesus' name.